Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God bless Australia. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for bringing us together again, and we ask that you help us to understand the mystery of our faith, and the reasoning which makes it possible for us to grasp it in our intellect. Bless our inquiry and help us to root in our heart where we have learned through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. I'm happy to be back for our third and last talk on this series. It's called Converting the Pagans, How Christianity Baptized Greek Philosophy. If you are here for the first time, a special welcome. You came to the, the most important of the three because all the hard work that we have done in the first two lectures will now reap fruit. So you will be like those five o'clock arriving vineyard workers who cash in by doing only one hour of work. And the rest of us, having learned from that parable, will be happy that you are with us. Let's uh, review our progress so far. In, and we do this in following my outline. Today, I will complete the outline. There is no back page. That means we will finish this. And we will go quickly. So I hope everybody brought his or her thinking cap today. If you don't have one, there's still a few left on the back table. Okay, we have both the electronic and the manual versions. Okay, let's begin with the, the problem. The problem converting the pagans, how Christianity baptized Greek philosophy. One could approach this historically. I'm not doing that because I'm not a historian, even of church history, but also because uh, the problem is primarily one that is found in what we call fundamental theology. And it points to the larger issue of how, in, in fact, our faith deals with reason, particularly reason coming from sources other than our own. And for that reason, the word philosophy is a shorthand word for the human disciplines. This is what it meant in the medieval period. And as I explained, it still has that residue of meeting in what we call a PhD, which means no matter what your particular discipline, your particular discipline in some sense shares in this universal sense of philosophy. We also looked at the briefly the problem of considering faith and reason as two major sources for our intellectual or our belief 
systems. The problem is, is that whenever we have a many, we need to reduce it to a one, as St. Thomas explains over and over again. And secondly, the problem with that is that in the end, it looks as if our faith, God's revelation, has some competitor, namely reason. And so we have to split the difference, especially if there appears to be a conflict. And so what we'll be moving toward today as we proceed historically all the way up briefly to St. Thomas is to learn that, in fact, we only have one master principle, and that is God himself who will give us uh, an, an insight and a key to placing reason within the faith. But how we do that has to be done with great care. And so we want to avoid a hybrid result. We want something that is both divine and human. Our approach in the first session was to first introduce some introductory issues, and then we talked about the gospel, the covenant kingdom, and the world. I offered a brief introduction to Revelation and its relation to human reason and experience. And then I tried to show last time, and we spent a lot of time on this, the scriptural approach, or better approaches, to human reason. And we learned that reason is not something that is simply imported into the faith and not simply imported into Revelation, but in fact is part and parcel of it. Reason is necessary for our grasping the faith. Reason is, even in with, within revelation, may be understood in some sense as that human contribution to settling God's revelation within us. For example, we talked about the, the, the long human, but also divinely underwritten arguments of, say, St. Paul in the letter to the Romans, and that of the unknown author of the letter to the Hebrews. So in cases such as that, we, we can see obvious human reasoning that uses human structures, human forms, human language, human logic, but nonetheless, at the same time, is communicating to us God's revelation. So our revelation is not some mystical, simply sitting in a room all by ourselves and closing our eyes and expecting the one just to descend on us. Our revelation from our God is one of a logos, of a word, and of words. And it's very wordy. This is a pretty big, thick book. It takes a little while to get through it. So God's revelation is appealing to us and, yes, also to our reason. And we investigated, then, the two fundamental mysteries of our faith in which reason is implicated. And one we can roughly associate with the Old Testament, or the Covenant, and the other we can associate with the New Testament, or with the Gospel. And the first is creation. Creation is, as we know, from God. All that is is either God or from God. And our reason, which is created by God, is also our capacity to make God's created world our own. So no matter who is studying it, no matter who is looking at it, whether in ordinary experience, whether one is engaged in high-level research at a major university, or whether one is simply trying to cross the street, our reason is at work. And it is at work in reading our world. And the world that we are reading is God's world, the reason with which we read the world 
is God's reason created by him and the very unity, the very natural relationship between the world and our reason is a gift from God. Imagine if God gave us a reason that was wired for the planet Mongo in a different parallel universe, okay? And it just did not fit in this one. It would like be having the wrong software for your computer. It would be of absolute no use. But in fact, our reason is for this world, and for that we can be quite grateful. The other mystery of our faith, that of the Incarnation, means that God has not simply created a world, but has, has drawn it into his very being, in the person of the second in God, the Word of God, the Logos, who by entering into our humanity allows our humanity, including our reason and our word and words, to enter into his own divine life. Now today we want to start out in, on fresh uh, territory and we now move to B, development of a theological tradition, key moments in the early church. Let's just take a look at my outline briefly at BCDE so we can see where we'll be going. You'll note that it's basically an historical approach. In our first section here in B, we'll try to say some statements about the, the early church. Secondly, we will look at early scholasticism, roughly the seventh century, with one little exception there, St. Vincent of Lorraine, but roughly the seventh century until the, uh, the birth of the high middle ages. And then I made a mistake. D should be called development of a theological tradition, um, uh, key moments in high middle ages. So we need to make that correction right away. Obviously, I was taking a shorthand there, a shortcut with uh, paste, and I forgot to uh, finish the job. And finally, E, contemporary applications. I'd like to conclude with some statements on the relevance of our subject matter for today's world. Okay, let's move now to uh, B1, from scripture to tradition. For a number of reasons that are both divine and human, revelation comes to a close. And the primary statement that captures that is that revelation closed with the death of the last apostle. And what that really means is that revelation closed with those who had primary and, and world experience of a, of, a, of a particular revelationally important kind and who associated with Christ. So once that generation dies and once their work in the scriptures is complete, then revelation comes to a close. But our faith does not come to a close, it's just getting started. And so what happens is over a period of centuries, a, a development, not from scripture to tradition, but rather from scripture to scripture and tradition. That is to say that this, even the scriptures now become part and parcel of our patrimony, of our deposit of faith, which is this rich mineral 
mine uh, of treasures then that are available to us uh, in Scripture primarily, but also in a in a secondary sense that it's called tradition. There can be oral traditions that accompanied uh, the uh, development of the early church. It could also refer to uh, the capacity to read the scriptures aright. And later we will also develop the notion of the, of the magisterium. And those three, the scripture, tradition, and then the magisterium form a tripod or a, a unity, a little trinity, as it were, in which God's revelation is mediated to us. The, the magisterium of the church is not a font of revelation the way scripture and tradition, but as the interpreter of it, it certainly has a very special status. Now, the reason that this happens is because, first of all, uh, the, the scriptures have to be defined. So it took the church a couple of centuries to say, this is the canon. This, this, these books in here are the scriptures, and these over here are not. The Gospel of St. Thomas, the Gospel of James, I'm sorry, did not make it. Okay. T today we have scholars who, of course, love those scriptures, but are not so keen on these. Fine. Everybody has his preferences. The point is, is that you have to first have a, a body of texts that, that the church canonically recognizes as its scriptures before we can proceed. And so we, we get that. Now, with the development then of a canon and, and a set uh, number of texts, now the thinking of the church, the theology of the church is ready to, to get started in a formal way. And uh, the first thing that has to be done is to, uh, to justify that. Number two, tradition and theology. My formulation here is, is taking human responsibility for divine revelation. This arises from the very fact that the show goes on. If, in fact, the revelation of Christ was for one generation, then... You wouldn't even have to bother writing scriptures. Oral traditions would suffice. Maybe a few notes, a few outlines here and there we could pass around. But, but spending you know, decades with these beautiful formulas that we find in the prologue to the Gospel of John or in Hebrews would simply not be necessary. And for that reason, then, um, the... Uh, the development of, of a uh, tradition then is our taking a responsibility and making God's word now present to future generations. And so one of the, the key issues that the very earliest theologians faced was the issue of continuity and the issue of a tradition, with a little t now. How do we keep the, the message alive and how do we keep it authentic? This is now the rise of an interest to what we call orthodoxy, which is right thinking. So uh, in this interest of finding right thinking, of course, we, ha we recognize that various people are understanding the gospel in somewhat different ways. And so new categories arise, such as heresy, which is a, is a rejection of, formally a rejection of what the church has agreed upon and insisted upon as a necessary tenet of the faith. What also arises is the notion of, of, of various approaches, so that while your position and my position, neither of which are necessarily heretical, 
neither of them, on the other hand, can say this is the definitive way. And to this day, the church simply has not made a decision on a number of theological opinions. And that's the way it should be. As the founder of phenomenology, Edmund Husserl, once said, it's the, it's the mark of a wise person to let ambiguity be amb ambiguous and not try to, to, to crush you know, and stamp uh, out uh, other uh, positions which, in fact, may be equally valid or, in fact, true. We find this balance, for example, in St. Thomas. He's very careful to distinguish opinions which are good that he might mildly disagree and say, well, my, my preference is this, from, on the other hand, opinions that are, in fact, heresies. And then he gets out his um, axe and smashes them to pieces. Okay, so the fact then that, um, that, that we had a, re a revelation that is now given scripturally but also orally, and the fact that there are uh, competing understandings of, we might say, the difficulties or the problems or the mysteries of the faith, but also of new problems that arise. Okay, just as today, what, what do you do in this new circumstance? What about persecution? Okay, uh, we're in a small town, and now there's, there, are, there are a greater number of Christians than there are persecuting Romans. Should we continue to sacrifice ourselves in the arena, or should we rise up and throw the bums out? Okay, issues like this arise and have to be faced. You look in the scriptures, and you don't find a ready answer, or you find one answer on page. 465, but it appears there's another answer over here. So applying the text to daily life, uh, even in terms of practical and moral issues then, means that we have to continue to develop uh, the tradition. And this is why theology now is off and running. Now, it's not as if everybody is in agreement that this is necessarily a good thing to do, because there are dissenting voices about even whether we should be thinking about these things. So we have what might be called the early Christian fundamentalists. They want to stay as close as scripture, uh, to scripture as possible, and they are very concerned that the pagan thought that's out there is going to be imported into the faith, and we're going to end up with something diluted and hybrid. So what can we do? Well, uh, one famous statement uh, is made by the uh, theologian called Tertullian, who's uh, famous for um, certain positions that he took in the theology of grace, but also did some very important work in establishing a vocabulary for the Trinity. So that famous uh, tract uh, that I'm referring to is one in which he wrote, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? And if you don't know what the answer is, the answer is nothing, okay? And so he's on his... Um, rhetorical soapbox here, and he is fumigating against these um, free thinkers who are importing uh, Greek philosophy into what he thinks is the pristine Christian faith. Now, in fact, when you look at Tertullian's Trinitarian theology and look at some of the good work he did in defining terms, you will see that uh, on off hours, yeah, he uh, is doing the very thing that he was criticizing in that essay. It's very hard to criticize reason without using your reason. So, uh, nonetheless, that statement, even if it's not the case that Tertullian is the best representative of it, in a way remains the perennial uh, defense and the perennial um, refuge for those 
who want to basically uh, downplay and dismiss reason as best they can. Those people still are present in our Christian experience today. Now, the majority of people, however, recognized that, uh, first of all, we had to deal with pagan categories, and secondly, uh, they realized that they had to be met and sometimes on their own terms. And so we had the development of what was called apology, okay? Not in the sense of I'm sorry, but in the sense of here's my position. The apologia, the very first famous apologia of the West, of course, is, is, um, is Socrates' uh, defense of philosophy before the bar of Athens, which is usually the very first of the Platonic Dialogues, which is a, a masterpiece. And... Um, the rhetorical form of the apology was quite developed in antiquity, and everybody used it. One of the most important early theologians, if not the most important, of the early uh, two, first two centuries after the close of scriptures was the uh, saint Irenaeus, who wrote a number of tracts, quite long, in which he was refuting the pagans. So his most famous work is called Against the Heretics. And He's not the only one. There are others, too, that, that use this as their primary task as the first theologians of the churches to defend the faith. And to do so, of course, they have to use reason. Now, you should recognize that their opposition was rather intelligent. Okay? So, for example, um, Porphyry, who was a contemporary ph philosopher in the, in the Greek tradition and a master logician, in fact, his work is, is still valued to this day, that's P-O-R-P-H-Y-R-Y, something like that. Um, I have to write it down to see it correctly. Anyway, it's a, it's a difficult spelling. Uh, he was a disciple of, of um, Plotinus. Anyway, um, Porphyry, which we'll mention him in a moment. Uh, Porphyry, uh, in one um, text, criticized some um, Christian apologists for failing to recognize that the Homeric texts, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, were to be understood in a mythological sense. And so he said, of course, you know, you, you know, criticizing these things in terms of their bald, you know, uh, deeds, the, the gods and goddesses are doing all these crazy... He says, read the text correctly. He's giving the Christian apologist and instruction here, as it were, Herman Hughes, be fair to our position. We understand these as, as stories. And so, and so then, you know, then the Christian response has to take that into account. And so the point I'm trying to make is that you had a very high-level argument going on here between the pagans and the apologists. And that was very helpful because it sharpened the analytical and logical tools and thinking of the early Christian theologians. Now, let's talk a little bit about number four, the pagan background of theology. There are uh, three major strands of Greek philosophy that were inherited uh, by the Roman tradition. You've probably heard that the Greeks uh, were good at uh, two things, uh, fighting wars and doing philosophy. Also, um, building cities, they were pretty good at that. The Romans were, had a more practical mindset. Okay? They were master administrators. Okay? So, Today's uh, bureaucrat can look back to uh, the Romans as being um, perhaps the first civilization in the history of the West that mastered the art of 
administration to a very high degree. They were excellent builders. Their architecture and, uh, was, was phenomenal. Um, they were set back by the fact that they never um, understood uh, what the zero was, um, I understand, and uh, also their numbering system. If you've ever tried to read a number this long on a building, uh, was a little uh, maybe awkward. Okay, not great for spelling. You add up two V's. I, you add up a V and a V. I get two V's, and it's supposed to be five or ten. Um, anyway, um, but nonetheless, um, the Romans, uh, rather because the Romans were of a practical mindset, uh, they were also able to recognize the gifts of other cultures, and, and to a large degree they attempted to retain them, and also the many cultures that comprise the Roman Empire. We uh, end up getting, of course, a, a rather sorry picture of the Roman Empire because of the later decadence of it, and also because of what those decadent emperors and their tools did to uh, the early Christians. But for the most part, the Romans, uh, for, and it was in their own interest, uh, their, their general approach was to um, to allow a thousand flowers to bloom. Now, and for that reason, because they were able to take on and accept uh, the contributions of other cultures, they also did this with respect to philosophy. And so if you were uh, a Roman citizen, you were studying philosophy, you studied Greek philosophy for the most part. Yes, there were some Roman uh, philosophers around trying to do some new things, but nobody showed up uh, at their uh, store uh, for um, instruction, okay? And even the Roman uh, philosophers who were important, think of someone like Cicero, uh, are basically steeped in the Greek tradition, okay? So someone like Cicero is basically thinking in Platonic and Aristotelian categories. So the three strands of Greek philosophy that are inherited by the Roman uh, uh, period are what I will call the perennial tradition, okay? This is SPA. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, and the schools they built and the traditions they founded. And by school here, I don't mean that just in an abstract sense. The, the, um, the Academy of Plato uh, was uh, founded by Plato and lasted until, the, it was, uh, until sometime in the, um, I think it was 535, the sixth century, when it was closed by the Christian emperor Justinian. By then, uh, uh, as uh, Yaroslav Pelikan said, that was more an act of, uh, of burial than it was of execution, because nothing was happening there anymore anyway. So that, but the school lasted a long time, and it went through many phases. There's uh, traditional ancient Platonism, which is, tries to be uh, faithful to the spirit of Plato, and then you have what was called Middle Platonism that developed some new um, uh, interests, some new approaches, and new doctrines. And then you had what was called Neoplatonism, which is, in some sense, a, a Roman achievement, because Plotinus, his years were 200 to 270. But let's stay on course here and say then that the first strand of Greek philosophy, then, is that of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. The second is that of Stoicism. Stoicism was originally a Greek uh, a school of thought, but it was very highly uh, developed by a number of Roman thinkers. Two of the more famous um, uh, proponents and disciples of, of Greek Stoicism uh, were um, Seneca, who was a Roman philosopher, and the other was one of the em Roman emperors, unfortunately a persecutor, but other than that, actually a rather good emperor, uh, Marcus Aurelius, 
flourishings roughly from 180 to 190 uh, and uh, serving as emperor in those years. The third was, uh, was that founded by Epicurus, E-P-I-C-U-R-U-S. And uh, we, uh, even today, of course, you associate uh, Epicurean delights with overeating, eating sensually, and spending too much money on Lady Godiva chocolates. <laughs> but uh, in fact, Epicurus offered rather um, a, a, a very you know, a balanced um, approach to the satisfaction of all the passions and the desires of the human being. Far more important uh, for Epicureanism was not what happened in the kitchen, but what did not happen in the chapel. He was uh, uh, one of the Greeks who denied the existence of divinity. Okay? The gods or the god simply did not uh, exist. And so, uh, in a way, he is uh, one of the early grandfathers of contemporary atheism. Okay, those are the three big. Now, there, in terms of importance, if you're going to assign numbers, the perennial, in terms of weight, uh, out of 100, would probably take away about 80 uh, of the 100. And then uh, Stoicism, another 10. And then uh, another 15 or 18. And then Epicureanism, 2. In other words, uh, these are not equal, but those are the three strands. Okay, now the, 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 the church fathers and the theologians, the ones who were doing the heavy intellectual work in the early church, recognized that there were good things to be found in what I call the perennial tradition, okay? Uh, and, and, and that word will, will the, my image here is that of a great river, okay, that, that starts way up early in the, in the foothills. And so uh, you have to go back to Israel to get one of the fonts, and then you have to go to, to Greece, and then you have these, um, these uh, tributaries. And now I'm not talking in, in terms of revelation, I'm just talking in terms of Western civilization. They come together. They pick up the great Teutonic genius a few centuries later, and they continue into the Middle Ages. And it's only with the rise of, of modern modernity, if I may use that word in this context, that they start to receive competition. Okay, so the, the perennial tradition at this stage, however, in terms of philosophy, the, the tradition in which the fathers were most grounded and found the most fruitful uh, categories for reflection and the most developed thought and the most they could use for the articulation of their own faith was found in the perennial tradition of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and their disciples. They also borrowed much from uh, the Stoics. Um, and the most important doctrine was that of natural law, which we retain to this day. It was the, um, it's not that the uh, perennial tradition did not have a natural law. They did. Uh, the Stoics developed the notion in another way, and they gave us the word, so they certainly helped with that doctrine. The, uh, the SPA uh, philosophers rather uh, called that natural right for the most part. Now, we also have to mention that there were other contemporaneous intellectual um, developments that were, that were uh, happening at the same time, and these were more than sideshows. In fact, just as today, your average young person is not terribly influenced by formal intellectual categories, but rather by our culture, right? If you want to put a few quotation marks around that, you have my permission. Okay, so uh, same thing was true back then. Okay, it's not that the, the people thinking most clearly and in, 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 in the most important way that, that make the headlines and bring in 
the influence and the money. It's rather those who uh, are good at PR and selling what sells, uh, selling well what um, what, this, what 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 uh, is popular uh, for the many in this on the streets. Okay, so uh, Gnosticism is 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 out there. Gnosticism represents a sort of a an approach to um, theology, or, or rather to religion, that tends to be um, pluralistic. A better word is actually syncretic. Let me write that out, just so I use the board and get board credit today. And because, not to write this loud, big enough so people in the back can see it. Okay, syncretic means borrowing from many different sources and not really in a very organized way, just kind of a mumbo jumbo. And what's interesting is that back then, it, it was very similar today. Every, finding two people, apart from the Christians, who could agree on anything was a, a remarkable event. So it was a very pluralistic, uh, multi-voiced uh, time. Uh, and as a result, this was actually a help to those who were equipped with the notion of orthodoxy, uh, but also had this wide panorama of ideas they could choose from, either to blast out of the sky or to adopt for their own. Okay, now, um, Neoplatonism, uh, I put this here as a separate category because it's almost a religion, it's like a philosophic religion developed by Plotinus who flourished uh, from 200 or lived from 200 to 270. Okay, he was a fierce critic and a pretty serious one of Christianity. Nonetheless, he ended up through uh, later Christian theologians of being a very important influence on Christian mysticism. Okay, so that's an example of what we call despoiling Egypt. Okay, that's an image which means you, as you're leaving Egypt, you know, you take the, the, the jewels and the goods. Remember that from Exodus? So when the fathers talked about despoiling Egypt, they were referring to our taking from the pagans the best they have to offer, primarily ideas, okay? And leaving behind the trash. Okay, um, now various uses of philosophy in the development of doctrine now start to arise in the early church. Let's just talk about a few. We could go on all day, but we just have to be uh, disciplined. As I mentioned in the first or second lecture, the uh, important word homoousius, which we, through Latin, translate as consubstantiality. Um, there should be two O's in here, homoousius, uh, was a, um, was a, um, the source of a fierce uh, battle at the Council of Nicaea between the traditionalists and the progressives. The traditionalists wanted to stay with simply scriptural language. The progressives said, you can't do that anymore because we now have categories that are not found in scripture and we don't have in scripture the language and the concepts to respond to the heretics. So we've got to measure up to their language, transcend it, and clean it up. Okay, so uh, they won. And so to that, for that reason, then, you have the importation, formally now, in church doctrine, in the first formal ecumenical council of the church, the Worldwide Council of, uh, at the, in the port of Nicaea in, uh, in Italy, uh, and we start that great uh, conciliar tradition. Now, there are four big councils in the church, and I think my next speaker will probably tell you about these in great detail. Uh, the first was Nicaea in 325. Um, 
let's just, uh, does this thing turn over? I guess it doesn't. Okay, Nicaea, N-I-C-A-E-A, -E 325. The second was a few uh, uh, decades later, Constantinople I in 381. The third was Ephesus in, in 431. And just 20 years later, because so many issues were unresolved uh, in Ephesus, the greatest council of them all, Chalcedon, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N, all named after cities in which these councils took place. And they were ecumenical. They were worldwide, and people came a long distance. And unlike today, you didn't fly and get there in one day. So they were a big deal. And um, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, the last of the big four, and there were so several important several, uh, after subsequent ones, but we'll just stay with these basic four. Uh, the more we go into them, we see that the very language that's used in these doctrines is using Greek philosophical concepts that have been imported and refined and transformed by Christian theology. And these were necessary primarily to deal with the heavy-duty doctrines found in two areas, in Trinitarian theology and in Christology, the study of Christ. So that um, um, when you read, uh, and, and it's very involved and very intricate, when you read the work that the theologians did, say, before and after Chalcedon, I'm thinking of, of, of such thinkers as Theodore Mopsuestia, that's a mouthful, okay? Um, and Andrew of Samosata, and the so-called heretic Nestorius, okay? Uh, who actually, in fact, developed a, a very orthodox theology toward the end of his life and, and insisted that he was misunderstood, which is probably partly correct. Anyway, uh, when you read their, uh, their, their, not only their works, but their arguments with one another, this is the highest level of theological and philosophical discourse that you will likely see until you reach the high Middle Ages, okay? And uh, it's, it's, there's no doubt that they're using Greek uh, philosophical categories. And by baptized, now what we want to say that is that they transform the very notions, the very notion of persona or, or prosopon, and hypostasis or hypostasis. These Greek words are transformed and given new meanings okay, that are similar to and yet different from their ancient philosophical meanings, precisely because we have something new here. So you, have, you see here then um, uh, various uses of philosophy in terms of concepts and also in terms of the very vocabulary and thinking. You also have um, the, the uh, theologians studying formally logic and rhetoric. And as a result, the very method of thinking, not simply the concepts, but the very way that we think, okay, which was bequeathed to them in large measure by the Greek philosophical tradition um, filtered through the Roman um, culture, uh, in fact, then became for them um, a, a source for, uh, for their Christianized reasoning. And so the result is that you have the development of what I call a Christian philosophy, both in the East and in the West. And by Christian philosophy, I mean it's primarily a theology, but when it deals with issues um, that are on the same, a little bit on the edge, in which you're not dealing with formal doctrine, you're not dealing necessarily with God or Christ or salvation, but maybe practical issues or issues of culture, but nonetheless everything touching on the faith, um, you're still going to basically be working within the faith, but you'll be using lots of uh, philosophical categories 
and, uh, and styles of thinking and even logic uh, in the development of your thought. Okay, let's move on now to C, the development of a theological tradition. Now, at this point, we're going to take a much broader approach here, and I'm just going to mention one or two things that are important as we move forward, because I want to show how this uh, issue of our faith considering taking seriously uh, reason uh, will continue through the centuries and give us a, a new tradition that we still stand in today. I mentioned St. Vincent of Lerain, who in a way is still in the ancient period, but I put him first here because he wrote a very important work. It was called Remembrance, or the Commonatory, in which he has this statement. And I want, I want to read this to you. And what he's trying to do here is, is approach and, and, and face... The, the, for the first time in Christian history, the difficult problem of doctrinal development. Okay? And so here's his classic statement. Moreover, in the Catholic Church itself, all possible care must be taken that we hold that faith which has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. For that is truly, and in the strictest sense, Catholic, which, as the name itself, and the reason of the thing declare comprehends all universally. And this rule we shall observe if we follow universality, antiquity, and consent. Now he's going to define those three for you. We shall follow universality if we confess that one faith to be true, which the whole church throughout the world confesses. Antiquity, if we in no way depart from those interpretations which it is manifest were publicly held by our holy ancestors and fathers, and consent in like manner if in antiquity itself we adhere to the unanimous definitions and determinations of all or at least of most of the priests and doctors. He's talking about major names in the tradition. Okay, now, uh, what, what he's trying to do here is say, so a, a new proposal comes along, a new development, we're going to judge it by these standards, okay? So, the reason he's important then is that he's, our, he's saying the task of theology is to develop, okay? We need to develop the faith intellectually, but we need at the same time to safeguard the deposit of faith. And so here are some rules that I propose, which in fact the church has largely adopted. Um, these are rules that I propose to help keep us on the straight and narrow and to separate the wheat from the chaff. And that's why... Um, Vincent is so important. Okay, now Boethius, who was a, a Roman um, administrator uh, and ended up um, losing his, his, his life, so to speak, he was confined to prison because he fell in the disgraces of the Christian emperor. This is now a time when the, when the, universe, the empire is already um, is largely Christian, at least in his power uh, circles. Uh, Boethius is, is a very important thinker who may in some sense be called the great-grandfather of scholasticism. I don't, I don't know of any writer in Western culture who packed more on a page than Boethius. Um, it's, it's absolutely incredible when you read his little essays on the Trinity and so forth, and they're, and they're just masterpieces of, of logic and conceptual reasoning and of orthodoxy at the same time. He, he left a profound impact on subsequent thinking. 
So this is a little intermezzo, number three, not a thinker, but rather we need to stop and, and, and say that the great genius of the medieval period, the great discovery, so to speak, was nature. And by that, what I mean is that you could say that the early church was fascinated with and, and uh, uh, basically most concerned with developing the notions of God, Christ, and salvation. Those were the big three. And if you look at the doctrines of the, that were settled early on in the early church, all of them, for the most part, deal with, in the, with those three areas. Now, as we move into the Middle Ages, with that work um, not done once and for all, but rather uh, well-developed, uh, people are interested in looking at other areas. But at the same time, you have the rise of a new civilization. It's interesting, the early medievals still consider themselves Romans. They call themselves moderns, and they consider themselves still Romans, so to speak. But in fact, they were developing a new culture that they didn't, weren't even aware of. And for that reason, they became uh, interested in a, num in a new approach to the world that was Christian, but at the same time was discovering God's created world in a way that was not available to the ancients. And my uh, theory here is that is in large part due to the fact that it's very hard to be pro-nature when you live under an oppressive Roman regime. But once the world awake, you waken up and the birds are singing, you know, and the and, and springtime is coming, it will come again, we hope. And uh, and a new culture is 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 is, is awakening. You, you you have you get a new interest in the world, so to speak. And this this dominates the uh, the thinking of all the great medieval theologians. It's a centerpiece of St. Thomas's own thought: the discovery of the created world, not simply nature in a pagan sense, but rather nature as God's world, as his gift to us. And, and along with that, of course, reason. If uh, Boethius is the grandfather or great-grandfather of, of scholastic thought, St. Anselm, number four here, is uh, called the father of scholasticism. He's the one who starts out with a scholastic um, method. And one of the key moves here that he makes is to start thinking in a new way, which I just want to point out to you. It's to think in terms of the choices God did not make and to consider why he did not make them. It's to consider the contrary to fact possibility. Okay, We express that in English as if it had been the case or were this or this to have happened. So, for example, a question like if Adam and Eve had not sinned, would Christ have become incarnate? The ancients generally did not ask those kinds of questions. They were dealing with the faith as presented to them. This standing back and looking at it now from a, from a different lens, you, almost, you can say a wider lens, and considering the, the possibilities that are there that God did not take, and running down those paths to see why he didn't go there, sheds light and clarity on the choices God did make. And so this is a critical move uh, uh, that Anselm develops at great length in his masterpiece called uh, Why God-Man, Cur Deus Homo, in which he addresses that very question of why uh, um, the second in God took on our human nature. Um, St. Anselm was also poor for a number, number of other reasons. He was a master of logic. Uh, he was famous for the so-called ontological argument, which is an argument for um, 
coming to God simply through one's reasoning in the mind as opposed to examining the world. There was a quarrel that he helped generate because Abelard was a kind of a wild, creative genius of a disciple who, um, if he were living today, would probably make the tabloids. He ran off with a, a nun. Uh, Helena, and um, their uh, exploits are, are recorded in texts, and uh, uh, students of literature still like to read them. Okay. Anyway, Abelard was also a master at what's called a dialectician, okay? And so um, he wrote a book called Yes and No, Sick at Known, okay? And uh, in a way, what he, he was a, kind of a free thinker. I mean, he was Catholic and all that. But he was sort of bringing thought to the very edges, and he was upsetting a lot of people. And who he was above all upsetting were the, were the great monastic traditions represented by their leading figure, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. So St. Bernard of Clairvaux was very much opposed to scholasticism. He did not like the direction that Anselm and others were taking Christian thought. He wanted to return to scriptures, and he wanted theology to be basically a commentary on the text and nothing more. Now, again, like Tertullian, when you read his essays, you find, in fact, a master rhetorician and a guy who's doing a lot more uh, than what he's uh, proposing in his uh, formal texts. So, uh, but in any event, this was the great quarrel uh, that was raging in, 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 in this period, and this is the quarrel that St. Thomas inherited. We now move to D. The development now of a theological tradition in the High Middle Ages. I, I, I make here a cultural statement early on that we, that it's very important because a lot of people today who even know something about the medieval culture think of it in terms of castles. The great revolution of the high middle ages was not castles, okay? It was the rise of the cities. The great mendicant orders, there were three of them, four actually, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Trinitarians, and the early Carmelites, um, in large part arose out of the need to preach the gospel and to undertake the care of souls of people in the cities. Uh, and that's where they went. Okay? This was the new cultural event that was occurring. The, the university, the notion of a university was founded by the church. And these were relatively independent schools that, just like today, comprised a variety of disciplines, but also um, uh, had a, a schools of theology that tended to be um, more, say, you might say, creative, more open to scholasticism than the monastic uh, seminaries. The um, universities were extremely important. They were found in the major uh, cities, Oxford in England, uh, Cologne, um, Paris, Bologna, Okay, St. Thomas studied or taught at all of those except Oxford. And if he had lived longer, he probably would have made it to England. The Aristotelian invasion into the West helped the church and its thinkers recover a sense of nature here now in a formal theological way. And by invasion here, I mean that through the Arab commentators... Um, these works that were, were being translated gradually into the West. One um, uh, scholar, Fernand von Steinbergen, 
wrote a famous book called Aristotle in the West back in the 50s, I believe, which I've read a long time ago. And he showed that the development of thought in the West was a function of which texts by Aristotle were being translated at a particular time. And only in St. Thomas's time did we get pretty much the complete works. And so St. Thomas was going to be the, one of the very first who had the capacity to read these texts and to translate them into a Christian theology. And so he, he was the right person, probably one of the top five um, minds in, in world history, bar none, but not only that, he came at the, he not only had the right mind, but he had the right assignment. That is to say, was to Christianize it, as it were, Aristotle. Now, number three here. St. Thomas's important discovery for our purposes now, we're talking just about this issue, is his discovery of what I call self-standing reasoning. Building on the work of Anselm and other thinkers, St. Thomas takes now this level of reason to a new... Uh, um, level by doing what I call, you can use different words. He used the word abstraction. I use the word um, bracketing from, from phenomenology. Or you can use the word prescinding. It's this capacity to take on another viewpoint by leaving behind your own temporarily to sympathize with and empathetically understand another viewpoint, even one with which you disagree. And then having done that, then returning to your own framework and lifting your, your own thought into conversation with, disagreement with, or agreement with, or whatever, with that thought that you were able to isolate and clarify through your work of bracketing, of temporarily leaving behind and forgetting your own uh, point of, uh, of, of approach. And if you think about it, it's what we do every time we're a good listener. Right? And I hear another point of view, especially. I need to do this more if, I, if you're saying something I disagree with. Okay? Um, but his capacity to read Arab texts, Jewish texts, Greek texts, okay? texts of heretics, and to really understand and read them from the inside, and then to respond to them at a higher level, precisely because he was able to do that. He did this, and he practiced this, and he showed us how to do this in his masterwork, his Summa of Theology called the Summa Theologiae. And you see he is doing this early on in uh, the very first question, which has 10 articles. This is his very opening question in his long, huge Summa of Theology. In Article 1, he, he deliberately begins theology by adopting the perspective of the secular professors who do not want theology to show up at the university. And they basically say, we don't need you. We've got everything covered here. Look at Aristotle's table of the disciplines. Go away. But theology says, I got something new. Okay? And what that new is, is that we human beings have been given, and notice his, his very pastoral start here, have been given um, a new end, a new reason, a new purpose for life. It's eternal life. And so we need a new knowledge to help us attain that. And that's what theology is. And so they begrudgingly, by the end of Article 1, say, okay, take us your chair down there at the end of the uh, campus. Now, in Article 2, Thomas shows that, in fact, theology, which is rooted in God's revelation, 
this revelation itself is rooted in God's own knowledge of himself. Thomas takes, he does a, a theology of revelation and shows that the revelation that God gives us of himself and of ourselves and of the world itself is a reflection of God's own philosophy, God's own knowledge, God's own logos, God's own wisdom. And so we are rooted in a very sacred lineage, which is not simply human, but divine. In the third article, he shows how the study of theology is a study of everything from the divine perspective, including God's world, okay? Because we participate in God's simple and unified vision of all things. That's a direct paraphrase from the text. And he says that we, insofar as we do theology, are participating, sharing in God's own perspective by looking at all things and, 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 as it were, intellectually blessing them and bringing them into the faith. And therefore, there is no creature that is not, in some sense, implicitly involved in the theological act, even though, in fact, we don't cover the details. For example, hydrochloric acid, we generally don't get around to. We leave that to the scientists. But we acknowledge that hydrochloric acid is a creature of God. Now, that's extremely important because you can see now, and this is where I'm going to have to conclude, because we're out of time. And I'll be happy to talk about these other issues uh, privately. Um, I'll hang around for a while. Um, is that we replace then this faith-reason dichotomy, as everybody is talking about it, and understand that revelation is, in fact, many splendor, and that we can have what we can call a first revelation, a natural revelation, which is God's revelation of the world, which I referred to in uh, my first lecture. And the best statement, perhaps, in Scripture is found in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens proclaim the glory of God, and the firmament shows forth the work of his hands. Okay, so the very world is, in the, in, with the eyes of Revelation, now read through this um, God's revelation, and itself carries a meaning of the divine within it. Okay. So that is what we call a first revelation. God goes further. Historically, he offers to us and personally a revelation through the prophets, Christ, and the apostles, which is one that we cannot obtain by going out and running around in a meadow or working in a laboratory in a high-tech institution. We have to stand in a tradition that is intentionally by God mediated through other human beings so that our dependence in faith is mirrored in our dependence on a human tradition which is at the same time divine. And so when we look at it that way, then we see that everything, including reason, can be and should be articulated under this master concept of revelation. And we can take Thomas's further step and say that revelation itself is a participation in God's own science, a science which at the same time is a science of love. Thank you. Um, Father, last time you mentioned the importance of Benedict's Regensburg Address. Could mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about that or E1 on your outline? Right. You may remember he made uh, a remark that was interpreted negatively by the secular culture. The negative remark uh, was that he was uh, criticizing um, some um, um, a Muslim position from a medieval text. 
the, the, the address is important. It's part of uh, one of his major themes, uh, not only of his pontificate, but also in his career as a theology, is, uh, is, is, is the defense of reason. He pointed, he's point, he pointed out in that address briefly, and he's done it in greater detail in other texts, that the, 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 the task in, in the period of the rise of modernity, often called the Enlightenment, the rise of modern atheism and the rejection of the perennial tradition and the Christian tradition, both, not only Christianity but also the Greek tradition, and, he, and the desire to start over, Descartes' uh, you know, a new approach, and uh, the French Revolution is a political embodiment of a new approach, you know, just burn and destroy the, all of the past so we can start over and get it right. Communism has, has the same progeny. Um, then the task was to try to um, uh, save uh, revelation, to save the faith in the, fa in the face of, of the triumph of reason, as a, and the Enlightenment was called. Today, our task is, 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 is even more difficult. We now have to draw a line in the sand, which is even closer to the water, with a raging army closing in on us. Not only do we need to save the faith, we need to save reason itself, because what's happened in the West is, is, a, is a rise of a number of philosophical positions, which has undermined the very capacity for us to, um, if I may put it this way, believe in truth anymore, and, and, and to know at all, okay? And this, this, the resulting relativism of our time has resulted in, um, in, a, um, in, a, in, a, in a crisis um, in which, uh, you know, we, we see this in the moral sphere, the, the ethical sphere, we see it in the, in the current cultural biases of our time. You're supposed to stay with the program, okay? What you held 20 or 30 years ago was then, this is now. And stay with the, the latest, which is delivered to you, of course, by the elites, who have a vested interest in certain intellectual outcomes. Okay, um, now, what he's doing is he's saying to the, to the to, and I, this is a long, I'm sorry, I'm violating the rule, but um, <laughs> I, I don't see Melanie right now, so I think I'm okay. Um, he's saying to the other religions of Revelation, get with it here, recognize that, you, that, that, that we are all in this together. We need to... To, from our own revelatory point, we, we need to make a common defense of reason. And, um, and also, we need to uh, stand against those expressions of revelation, even within our revelatory traditions, read extremism, like Taliban, Al-Qaeda kind of thinking, in which uh, you're giving, you know, revelation a bad name, and you're also really um, undermining one of the very foundations of our faith, which is a belief in a, in a reasonable, uh, wisdom-loving God, okay? Which should be a, a, the joint patrimony of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so um, what he's basically saying is that, is that is, um, is, is laying down a gauntlet, a challenge to, to the secular culture to be open to reason which, as a first step to being open to the faith. Father, uh, what role did the popes play during this time period you, you discussed today? Were they influential? Did they let the, just the philosophers and the church councils do their thing? Uh, some, uh, the, the papacy had a very checkered career in the Middle Ages. Some of the absolutely worst popes were, who were nothing other than uh, uh, palace uh, stooges 
of corrupt emperors. Uh, that took place in the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. So it was, it was a horrible time. Um, but beginning actually with the great Gregorian reform, one of the first of the great uh, medieval popes was uh, St. Gregory the Seventh, 1175 to 1182, or 72 to 85, rather, sorry. Um, and he instituted a number of, of reforms um, from his own monastic background that really got the medieval papacy off and running. Uh, Francis of Assisi and Dominic of, um, uh, of Osma or Guzman uh, were both benefited from very strong and effective um, popes in their time. Innocent III, um, and then after him, Honorius III. So, um, in terms of doctrine, they even in, intervened uh, to a degree in, in supporting um, the, the, the theology of the mendicant schools, which had to fight its way into the university. The way I presented that in my last uh, set of points of Thomas starting his summa from the point of the, of the university, that was not just you know, an academic move. That was a real issue. They were trying to actually get into the universities and offer a, a, you know, a new approach to theology. And, um, the Dominicans were very much supported by both Innocent and uh, Honorius. So, um, uh, in, in general, um, in the High Middle Ages, the papacy was an effective agent for um, um, developing a uh, articulate, um, muscular, um, scholastic theology that was at the same time good thinking and orthodox. Father, we're getting a, a question from online. It's from Harold, who, I forget where, he's in Springfield. Father, how can we best answer those who say that Western scholasticism is futile because we cannot fully figure out the faith by our own tinkering? Okay, well, first of all, I would say that um, we are not simply disciples of scholasticism. We are disciples of the perennial tradition. So. I don't know of anybody who would recommend today that we simply do a theology of scholasticism or neo-scholasticism or 21st scholasticism. We should do a theology that brings forth the best from every time and climb. And in our own day, we need to move uh, from Western civilization in a way to world civilization. So we're just beginning now to uh, start to uh, dialogue with and learn about other traditions that may have things to offer us as well. So um, our, our faith should be very Greek, it should be very Roman, it should be very medieval and therefore scholastic. It should also be uh, in some sense uh, modern, not modernity, but rather the, 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 the good moves that were made by uh, Christian uh, thinkers in uh, the more modern centuries, okay? Um, so Trent, the Council of Trent, which is often uh, a synonym for backward, antiquated uh, thinking was one of the most progressive, uh, reform-minded, and forward-looking councils that the church has ever um, benefited from. So um, theology today cannot be done without the excellent work of Trent. Some of their decrees were masterpieces of theological um, synthesis. The, the, uh, the decree of justification, unjust justification, uh, I use all the time in my classes, for example. And uh, in, in our own time, too, uh, all sorts of exciting um, new fields of, of theological inquiry have been opened thanks to the wonderful work done in, in contemporary hermeneutics uh, and also a phenomenology, to name two that I'm especially fond of. 
Hermeneutics, by the way, coming from a, the, the Greek word for Hermes, or the god, the messenger god, the god of communication, the very first uh, hermeneuticist in Western civilization that we name was a, was a priest. It began as a Roman Catholic and then uh, was very well developed by Protestants. And the reason is, is because the study and interpretation of text was a very important to them because of the scriptures. And so uh, one of the finest works of, um, uh, uh, of hermeneutics written in, a, in our own time by the great Lutheran theologian Hans Georg Gadamer, Truth and Method, is something that is a rich minefield for a philosophical thought for, and, and, and for... And, you know, he was a, he was a very strong um, traditionalist, and he loved the tradition. So um, the point is, is that we need to. Uh, this is exactly what Saint Thomas Saint Thomas here is saying in the beginning of his summa: Do not be a scholastic; be a world open person that will take truth wherever it is found. And he did what he preached. He, when you look at the summa, he's quoting everybody. He quotes Moses Maimonides, the, the, the Jewish rabbi. He quotes all the major uh, Arab thinkers, uh, Verilis, was called the commentator. He doesn't even call him. He gives him the title, the honor, the commentator on Aristotle. I call it Verilis, the Arab thinker. Avicenna, Arab thinker. All the ancients, okay, including... So wherever truth is found, you go for it. And if it's found in scholasticism, you embrace it. And there are categories uh, in, in scholasticism and ways of thinking and insights that are discovered at that time which, which, when they enter uh, Western or world consciousness, they become a common patrimony. St. Thomas's critical discovery of the distinction between essay and essence, I think one of the, perhaps a handful of the most important uh, theological and philosophical concepts ever discovered, came into Western thought in his head sometime around 1260, and it's with us ever since. So if that's when it comes in, that's when you claim it. If Einstein's special theory of relativity shows up in what, 1908, something like that, somewhere in the early part of the 20th century, that's when it becomes ours. So you don't abandon things simply because they appeared at a certain time in history. You claim them and you move forward with them. So according to Jehovah's Witness at work, I'm an uber-pagan who you know, believes the wrong things because of the holidays I celebrate and the way I believe in God through the faith of Catholicism. How do we um, appropriately talk to people? Granted, it's like a pseudo-Christian faith. How do we appropriately approach those who think philosophy has no place in faith, whether baptized or not? Well, I, the best way I would begin with them is to show that their position is um, not scriptural, it's not revelational, and it's inconsistent. Um, that's how I would begin. And so I, you go to scriptures and you, and you show, you know, look at some of the texts that I did. Um, and many that you never got around to and showing the role of, of reason. You can also argue it theologically, as I tried to do um, as well. Um, part of our problem today is that, you know, we also have this, this, this dichotomy, this, this artificial distinction between reason and history, okay? And today, the general mood in the street is to be anti-historical, right? You just, and the re why is that? Well, in the ancient days, you had, you had to make an argument for the new. When you, when you presented a new idea, what you would do is you would, you would sign it St. Augustine or something, or Augustine. That's why we have all these pseudo-writers from antiquity, because they were proposing something new, but it would never sell unless it had the mark of antiquity on it. 
Today, if my cell phone is six months old, I, I trash it. So because of technology and for other reasons, we have a bias against history. And so we end up setting up reason over against history. You can't do that because, as I just gave two examples with respect to the discovery of essay essence and the discovery of the special relativity uh, theory of Einstein, eternal truths usually appear in distinct historical moments. And you can only retrieve and keep those by keeping entire history with you. That's how a civilization moves forward. If all of us today were simply to depart completely from tradition in every simple way, we wouldn't even be able to make it home tonight. Our cars would disappear from the parking lots. But look how many hundreds of thousands of engineers built your car over the last hundred years. You know, I mean, everything has a tradition. So that reason is rooted in tradition. Tradition is, is what, what we would say is the human race spread out over time, the march of generations, thinking together, so to speak, and offering to those that follow after them the, the fruit of their works. Okay, so, um, um, so the trouble today is that, is that everybody, including Christians, um, are, are not thinking historically. And, and to forget the past is not only to not have a future, as uh, was it Santayana said, or, but is also to lose the very capacity for reason. So what we need to do today um, is try to you know, argue that Christianity is best served when we know our history and when we know our reason. And it's very hard to do these things in a, in a vacuum. And just running up to you and reading you a few lines here, you accepted Jesus as your personal savior, is not going to work for most people, okay? It, um, I, when I studied in Europe, it, it doesn't work over there. Um, it, it doesn't work over there. So, um, and, and it wouldn't probably work for, uh, for most people. What we have to do is we have to get educated. The educated person, in a way, has the inside track on, on today, given the very secular uh, culture in which we live, has the inside track on, um, uh, uh, on a grasping and articulating and living with them. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.